Hello everyone listening at home, welcome to the 7 Point Highlander cast. We are the official podcast of the 7 Point Highlander format. I am your first host, Sav, and with me is our regular, Vance. Hello. So today we've got a mixed bag for you. It's going to be an exciting assortment of a variety of different things. And we're going to start off with our menagerie with What's the Point? So What's the Point is our regular uh, segment on the cast and we talk about a particular card that is pointed, why it's pointed, and what its future is. So let's talk about Imperial Seal. What does Imperial Seal do, first of all? So Imperial Seal is one black mana. You pay two life when you cast it, or when it resolves... And you search your library for any card at all and put it on top. Seems strong. You know, you get to find anything that you need. And obviously its home is generally in combo decks. It doesn't see that much play. The types of decks that do want to play it are the types of decks that want to go off really, really early in the game, like uh, Vampiric Tutor and Imperial Seal as six of their points. And then they don't have much other space. So Yeah, because the key thing about Imperial Seal is it's three points. And if you're familiar with the points list, you might realize that Vampiric Tutor is also three points. And Imperial Seal is more or less strictly inferior. And you might reasonably ask, well, why isn't it two points instead? Fundamentally, the reason for that is, although it is definitely worse than VT, like no question it's worse, Mm -hmm. it's not enough worse. If you're playing Channel or a deck like that, which might want to play Vampiric Tutor but can't quite afford the points for it, if Imperial Seal was two points, uh, suddenly that's an extremely attractive proposition and uh, it's the sort of card that tends to lead to turn two or three kills. Uh, It doesn't lead to a lot of turn ones because you've got to have a, a huge amount going right for you in that case. But it leads to a reasonable amount of turns twos and threes. And in and it's close enough in power level, we feel that you just can't have it at a different points level than Vamp. Yep, makes total sense to me. So I think the point of comparison now is going to be a relatively new printing by the time that this cast comes out. Probably not yet released. We'll still be in spoiler season or just before a pre-release when this comes out or maybe just after. I think this will come out between the pre-release and the release date, but I'm not 100% sure. Cool. All right, if we've got our math right, then you're hearing this at the right time. Either way, (laughs) you might be picking up a card that looks a whole lot like Imperial Seal in one of your booster packs for Corset 2020. Uh, So what is this new card? What does it do? What's it called? And it's got some cool flavor text too from my memory. Yeah, so it's called Scheming Symmetry, and uh, I'm going to read it out, and then I'm going to give Sav a bit of a pop quiz. It's, yeah, Scheming Symmetry, it costs a single black mana. Choose two target players. Choose two target players. Each of them searches their library for a card, then shuffles their library and puts that card on top of it. So it's Imperial Seal, but your opponent gets to do it as well and you don't pay any life. Now, Sav, mm. so let's imagine mm-hmm. you're at an event in the US. Let, let's say CFB have decided to put on a, a big Highlander at GP Vegas. Sounds great. You've somehow got there. You sit down for your first round and your opponent is, uh, let's say, LSV. So someone who is very, very good at magic, um, but you've got no idea what they're going to be playing because you've never played against them before in Highland. I'm adequately terrified. Yep. They play a Bayou, they tap it, and they cast Scheming Symmetry. Ah. Now what we're going to do here is we're going to think about, and it's game one, you've got, you've got no other information. We're going to think about what deck you might be playing and what you'd search for. 
Okay, so I've got a mag let's say I've got a magical deck or at least some kind of deck where I've got access to a variety of different things, maybe like a mid-range deck or a hate bears deck or something like that. Well, we can we can talk about different decks you might be playing and what they would search for. Yeah. Yep. All right, sounds good. I'm going to let's let's say that I'm playing a mid-range or hate bearsy deck or at least some kind of creature-based deck that has access to some critters. So, let me see. I'm going to be able to go to my draw step on turn 1 and play something. Well, first of all, that eliminates all of the hate bears. If I can get to my turn two, then maybe I could find, say, the new Oof, which is a Null yep. Rod. I could maybe find uh, something like Thalia. Thalia could be a nice type of card yep. that goes, hey, I'm going to deny you the ability to, say, Storm Off, maybe. But the hard part is not knowing what they're scheming for dramatically affects what I choose because imagine I just I'm just imagining going oh look at this I've got this mega brain play I know that LSV loves storm and he drafts storm he forces storm every time there's a vintage cube or a legacy cube or something so Maybe he's gone. He's got this Bayou in a Storm deck, and he's just going to try and go off with a Storm card next turn. So I go and find Thalia, because I happen to have a turn two, hypothetically, and I play my Thalia after I draw it, I pass a turn, and if he's not on Storm, I probably have got zero value out of scheming. Some of the things I was thinking of um, that you might grab if it was turn one, um, and they've gone first, and you don't have, you know, acceleration of any kind in your hand. So Thoughtseize is good against some options. Mental Misstep is good against some potential things they could get. Uh, if you're in a, a white, aggressive, or mid-range deck, your best option is probably Swords or Path main deck. Like, there's not a lot of other cards you'd be playing main deck that could possibly interact with a variety of things they were doing. Yeah, maybe they're on Reanimator or something and they're going to try yeah. and do a really, really quick Reanimate on turn two where they go, oh, I've, I've searched for Entomb or something and they're going to go Entomb, ex uh, Entomb Reanimate. Yep, fair point. Um, or Wasteland or Strip Miner or other things that you could just try and, you know, disrupt them with. Although, I like that. That's a, great, that's a great idea, yeah. Sometimes you'll do that and they'll go, all right, well, I'll take an extra turn, but I'm still going to, you know, channel you out or whatever. Um because the problem with each of those is they only answer a subset of enemy options. So, like, if you've got Thoughtseize, uh, maybe they're actually on lands and what they put on top was Fast Bond so that they can generate a Merit Liege on turn two. Mm. Um, and Because they've, they've got the lands they need in hand. Or, you know, or Crop Rotation or... I don't know, crop rotation is probably a bad thing to tutor for in that situation. <laughs> but you, you get the idea. If you've got... If your best answer is to, you know, get creature removal, then if they're not on... Again, lands or probably reanimator, um, and sometimes even if they are on reanimator, uh, yeah, they find Grizzlebrand, and then they just kind of go, yeah, sure, you path this, no problem. I'll just draw fourteen anyway. Or, or the card they got is Iona, and they, you know, big brain you and uh, <laughs> name white, and yeah, you might technically have other things to do, but they've also got a seven-seven in play. There's a lot of things to my mind that make playing this blind turn one potentially quite hard for the opponent to counteract in game one. A lot of the time, even if you play it on turn two and you've got sort of some idea what they're playing, you might make a mistake or they might be searching for a slightly different piece than you think. Like Thought Scale is obviously another good option. You can just mill it off the top of their deck. And <laughs> this, this has some great time. interactions with Thought Scale, right? Like you're playing scheming and you have Thought Scale and you go, hey, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> And of course, the, the other thing that might go wrong with your opponent playing this is um, they might just draw the card immediately. If they cast this on turn two or three and they're playing Storm or channel a variety of other decks, they're just like, yep, cast this, crack an egg, draw the Lotus off the top of my deck, vomit value at you until you die. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I, I think this is a really, really skill-intensive card on both sides. Isn't it interesting when you see a card where, you know, it's entirely skill-intensive for the pilot and... Or, or, or the other hand, on the other hand, it's really skill intensive for the opponent to play around. But this one's a card yeah. where both players are actively trying to outskill each other. It's yeah. quite interesting. And of course, the other thing to think about is what what's your set of choices? Does your set of choices change if the land they lead with is an underground sea instead of a bayou? Underground sea probably means they're not on lands. Makes reanimator about as likely. Makes storm more likely. Um, but it could also be in in some situations like a control deck or a mid range deck is just going for super value and hoping you make a terrible choice. Like they've just put a soul ring on top of their library, and they're just gonna you know grind you out that way. And yeah, you might get to fetch a thought season, take one of the planeswalkers or big creatures from their hand, but they're still gonna cast all the other ones. I, I really like how normally. Uh, you know, combo decks have to go off really quickly against control decks, and control decks kind of go, hey, as long as I hold up a counter spell, I'm perfectly fine. Same with tempo decks. As long as I hold up my spell pierce, I'm totally fine as I beat you down with this Delver of Secrets. And you just kind of outplay your opponent and you scheme away for something, and then they go, yep, haha, I'll go find my mana leak and put that on top. And they go to their turn, they leave their two mana open, they pass a turn, and you've found Life from the Loam or something else really resilient. Yeah, or duck depths. Duck depths, yeah, exactly. Like, there's some kind of way <laughs> of <like>, just well. <laughs> getting your control opponent. Because the thing is, yeah. you know that they're a control opponent in this in particular scenario. You know they're going to go find a mana leak. <laughs> yeah. and, and obviously, post-board, this does get a decent amount worse, particularly in combo decks. Mm. Um, because post-board, you've got the rest in peace or the oof or the whatever... Again, it doesn't really work turn one, but on turn two, you can just go, yep, uh, I'm going to go and fetch this oof, and now none of your artifacts have text anymore. And I've also seen how quite a few uh, Highlander decks recently have been rocking Graph Digger's Cage a lot, and that's yeah, a great yeah, yeah. you know, one little one drop where they scheme away, and then you just go get Graph Digger's Cage, and it's a turn one play. And it seems to shut down <laughs> a whole lot of nasty things combo decks tend to do in general. That seems insanely strong to me. Like, Doubt that we're going to preemptively point it because, you know, we're still in the situation where the only card that's ever been done for is Liliana Vess and it probably shouldn't have been. Um, although this is going to come out after the points announcement, so either I've edited this out or I was wrong if we did. But by the same token, I mean, maybe it plays much worse than it looks, but to me, I would suggest that this is probably the strongest tutor that's been printed since Portal 3 Kingdoms, almost exactly 20 years before this printing. Maybe uh, in some decks, um, Dark Petition's better. Like in Storm, Dark Petition's probably just a better card because you get more utility. You're much with all the rituals and so on. You're much like more likely to be casting it for two, and just putting the card into your hand. But um, in a lot of other decks, like Reanimator, where you're just not gonna be, you're not gonna be casting Dark Petition for two, basically ever. Um, this card's really, really strong. Yeah, it's very exciting and. We'll see exactly what how it pans out. The interesting part is obviously thinking about decks that want to play it. And, you know, obviously we've talked about combo decks like Reanimator and uh, Storm. But you could also imagine it in hybrid decks like the combo control decks, the Esper yeah. Gifts shells. Because, you know, when you're running Little Teferi, the three minor Teferi that goes plus one, I can play sorceries at instant speed. And you end of turn the scheme so that they find something, but they don't get to cast it before or with uh, or when in response to when you cast the thing you've schemed for when you untap. 
I mean, these are pretty exciting plays. Even just in any deck, like if you're playing Little Teferi, even if you play it on your turn and just draw it by, you know, minus three-ing and um, putting it, you know, bouncing something and putting it into your hand. And they can't interact with whatever it is, you know. And they can't interact with (laughs) with whatever it is. But but even if we don't assume something like Teferi, there's plenty of other cards um, that just draw a card. Yeah, Um, I I hear Gush is pretty good. In these kind of situations, <laughs> maybe you could yeah. scheme for fast bond, cast gush, return, <laughs> replay the lands. <laughs> oh, wait, I think we just uh, built a deck. <laughs> yeah, this to me is the card in the last few years which I feel most obviously is going to end up as one or more points. Again, as I say, you know, maybe people play with it for a while and go, "Oh, it's actually ugh, garbage." It feels to me like something that like. Every, you know, Storm's going to play it, Channel's going to play it. I'd be surprised if the reanimated decks don't play it. And I think it's actually got potential in a bunch of other decks um, in a way that probably violates some of those uh, making all games the same sort of rules that we've uh, discussed before with the community that are the reason that things get, point- things get pointed. Mm. But fundamentally, any time a tutor gets printed, we talk about whether it needs a point or not. That is, what's the point for Imperial Seal, a.k.a. scheming? <laughs> but yeah, yeah. basically, we went on a tangent there, but it's so close in comparison between those two cards. And combo yeah. decks are all about mitigating downsides, right? And the downside of minus two life and the downside of letting them tutor. Uh, if you can just make those things not downsides, uh, then, you know, or you can negate those, just ignore the downside, then they're good cards. So let's see how things pan out for the future. Just to clarify, I think scheming is a fair amount worse than Imperial Seal in most combo decks. Um, like I, I'd be pretty shocked if this card ever ended up at three points. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd be mildly, I'd be somewhat shocked if it doesn't end up at one or more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I guess we'll see what the future holds. Yeah, exciting. Alrighty, so that was what's so, the point. So the other thing that um, happened recently is Eternal Masters happened. Now, neither Sarv nor I could be there, but I think, Sarv, you've got some analysis of what happened and what went well that you, we can have a chat about. Absolutely. So we have uh, data that was compiled by Graham King, always stalwart of the format. Thanks, Graham. Yep, thank you very much. The King has uh, compiled all of the deck lists and the points and all of these things. So I've just trawled his data. I've done a couple of extra crunching just to... Uh, fit it in line with what we tend to talk about on the cast and we'll we'll do a couple of those things like what people rock up with and how they converted but I really really want to talk about something a little bit different this time which is talking about the conversion rates for specific pointed cards so we'll come oh, to yeah. that in a second uh, really really quick overview uh, the archetypes that people chose to sleeve up on the day. So this is really what people chose to rock up with rather than how they did. We had combo at 15% of the meta, aggro at 8% of the meta, quite low. Wow. Mid-range at 30% of the meta, quite high. Yeah. Control at 21%, tempo at 10%, and ramp at da 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 17%. Now, our last... Sorry. You broke up there for a second. Ramp was at... 17%. So much ramp. Wow. <laughs> That's insane, yeah. right? We have Given the last time it was like, you know, within a heartbeat of being zero from memory. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It was literal actual zero at the Adelaide Eternal weekend. And then before that, it was very, very close to zero. It was just... Ramp was an archetype that was waning in interest. And we're not we're not talking about how well it does. 
You know, there's always discussion about how artifacts are positioned in the meta at the moment, but it's really just about the confidence in the archetype, and the confidence was very, very low up until Masters Weekend. Suddenly people just thought, hey, time to dust off those soul rings and let's just go for it. So uh, in, in summary, basically ramp is finally on the up, but we'll see how that pans out. Uh, Mid-range is also on the rise, but the thing is, looking at all the data points over the last uh, few events and also the last basically 1.5 years since we've been tracking this on the podcast, mid-range is always on the rise and it just keeps going <laughs> up. It just never goes down. And <laughs> it was just ticking, ticking, ticking. Mid-range is 98% of time. Yeah, this, it's going to happen, all right? It's so going to happen. Unless this scheming thing has something to scheme about it. Yeah. Uh, the, the interesting thing is that tempo is just bang on, just... In the last, you know, basically 12 months since people started sleeving up rug life and then evolving rug life into different uh, styles of, of tempo-based decks and bug decks and all of these other different kinds of things, uh, tempo is just always consistently 10% of the meta. Just never above, never... It's like 11% and now it's 9%. Just basically it's always the same. Just good old reliable tempo just doing its thing in the background you know occasionally spiking an event and converting well but otherwise just being bang on uh the two to kind of call attention to uh we were seeing a a gradual drop in combo over the last year and a half but it saw a bit of a rebound at Adelaide Eternal Weekend, and it's continued that rebound now. It's it's st- it slumped at about 11%, then it went up to 13%, and now it's at 15%. And historically, it's been at around that kind of 18% of the meta, so this is perfectly fine. Yeah, I so think it's stabilised pretty nicely. Yeah, yeah, it's nice and stable. Like, the two to like call f- it- 15% of the meta being combo, um, if you had sort of, you know... I mean, I, I don't think the pure platonic ideal of a meta game is actually the ideal, but like... If you were after a sixth of all decks being a sixth of each archetype being, mm. you know, etc., that's pretty close. Like that's within yeah. well, well within the margin of error. Absolutely. So the the two sad points, I guess one of these is a sad point, one of these is not a sad point, uh, is people's confidence in both aggro and control have dropped. Now, f- for the most part we're happy if people are less likely to sleeve up a control deck because control was typically like a quarter of the format, 25 to sometimes 30% of the meta. And people have kind of lost a bit of that confidence. It's now at about 21%, which is, again, fine. Like, that's actually quite a healthy position for control to be at. Uh, But the sad one is aggro. Aggro, we've seen just explode in popularity since Stripmine was depointed. We did a few things to assist, like Wheel of Fortune going to zero, Stripmine going to one, and people's confidence in, in the archetype gradually increased. And for some reason, in this last event, Aggro just... No one really wanted to sleeve it up. 8%, this is kind of half of what it's been. And um, sad Yeah, thing. I mean... It's it's this thing we always talk about where our um, our sample size is not great. It being eight percent might mean that you know, depending on exactly what numbers that means, that might be like four people decided not to sleeve it up or didn't make it down or you know there's a variety of things that that could mean. Like so, if it's in just one event, then well you know we'll we'll survive. Um, if it's a long term trend, that's not great. Yeah, we'll monitor it and see how it goes. The the thing 
the take-home message though is conversion rates. So uh, we've just got two talking points on conversion rates and these need to be taken with a pinch of salt because whenever you look at conversions, you're looking at a top eight conversion for a 56 player event. These numbers are so small that you need to uh, interpret with caution. So what I'm gonna do is just talk about the two archetypes that did really well uh, rather than give an exhaustive review of these conversions because once you actually calculate the exact number for say one player or zero players it's not really that accurate so instead what I will draw attention to is the silver lining around aggro not many people were confident with the archetype being good turns out Aggro was absolutely insane at this event. For the very few people who sleeved it up, they all did so well that Aggro was the number one best converter into top eight performances. It was insane. So uh, hopefully what what people will do when they go and look at the top eight, just go and look at the uh, deck lists that Graham's put together. Uh, it'll give you an idea of what you might want to sleeve up at your next event because... These the conversion rate was great. I think it was something like you know three aggro decks in in the top eight. Uh, right, yeah, which is yeah. insane. You know when you look at an eight percent of people actually rocking up with it. So, you know, how many people does eight percent represent? Oh, it's basically like four four people, you know, four or five people, something like that. So right, okay, conversions insane. So there was five people and most <laughs> of them made top eight. <laughs> yeah, like they they saved up aggro and hey, one person didn't make it into the top eight. You know that's that's the you know imagine if you're a team and you're on team aggro. And you rock up to the the event, and in your team, everyone except one person gets into the top eight. That's an insane performance for your team. So on yeah, team aggro, it's great. You're having a pretty good day. Yeah. <laughs> Second uh, to that was combo. Combo performed really, really well, and it's you know combo is very diverse. You know, a lot of the time when people look at aggro, they go, "Oh, all aggro decks are the same." They aren't. They're definitely not. You know, you can have kind of green white hate bears style of aggro, which borders on a little bit of a mid range theme once it goes into the sideboard. Then you can have blue red you know burn type aggro you can have mono red burn you can aggro can come in so many different forms but basically if you're sleeving up a strip mine you and you you have a you don't have much of a focus on card advantage in the long game you're probably going to be an aggro deck um, yeah. Combo decks are so diverse. So go and have a look at Graham's uh, data and you can see which combo decks they were. But again, combo had a good conversion rate. Not as good as aggro because 15% of the field, 15% of the field was combo anyway, but it was way better than any of the other archetypes. And control, hey, well, not a single control player in sight made top eight, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and one of the things about combo is we've mentioned a couple of times in the last few big events that there haven't been any combo decks in the top eight mm. um, of, of the last several. So um, that's a you know broadly healthy sign. I mean, one of the things to consider is, um, again, and this goes back to the, the sample size slash player base issue is, one of the things you've seen at a lot of events in the last year or so, and you've probably got sick of us hearing about, is talking about you know how well Kess is doing. Um, and part of that is that the people playing it are very good players. Um, and two of those people, um, Tom Clift and um, Paul Mitchell. Paul Mitchell, yep. Um, we're just on different decks this time. So, um, you know, whether they would have necessarily made the top eight if they were playing Kess instead, it's hard to say. But that is... Um, it's definitely one of the factors to take into account in this sort of thing is, uh, you know, if um, some hypothetical, idealized, perfect player was playing in these events 
and they were just always top eight regardless of what they were playing so you know um you can't always say well this deck did well because it's an incredible deck sometimes it's just a really good player or someone who was really lucky on the day um but we've got to go with what data we've got yeah that's um, a i mean that's a really great example if you generally your your um gauge can be if you look at you know, Clift, Mitchell, or Billinghurst, and thinking, you know, what are you guys running? They're running Kespile. Oh, that's because Kespile has been identified as, you know, the best deck in the format at that particular time. So they're going to play the best deck in the format. They're going to have the best conversion rate because well, they right, play it. Both directions. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you, in an event like this, you notice that, you know, Clift and Mitchell are not on that deck. And uh, then you go, oh, uh, is this not the best deck in the format now at the moment? And generally, it's if you look to those top players of particular archetypes, if they if they choose not to sleeve up a particular archetype, then unless they're it's just having fun time. for a local event, then it's usually a gauge that hey, maybe Kess right now isn't as dominant as it has been in the past, and you can have a bit of faith that maybe Kess won't be getting a point. <laughs> or, or that they, yeah, well, yeah. Or that they've, you know, found a different way to attack, assuming everyone else is going to be playing it all. So, yeah. So I'm just looking at the list now. Um, one of the lists is Elves, but it's not actually the Elves deck that we normally see. Um, it's, it's an Elves deck that is actually playing, like, Elf synergies. Um, so that's interesting. Tribal. Uh, is that is that the first time a tribal deck has been seen as a you know a top eight you know? Well, I mean, there's there's been a deck that we often call elves, but it's more sort of um, mm, just good gr- green natural white, order, crater hoof, yeah, etc. Um, which plays a bunch of one mana elves, but like this is playing um, like elvish archdruid and azuri and. Uh, Birchlaw Rangers, which you definitely aren't playing unless you're playing a lot of elves. Literal, so. actual elves! Exclamation <laughs> mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's an interesting uh, deck to see. Nice. Looks well, like it was a good event. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. One one thing we can uh, turn our eyes to is something a little bit different this time around. We're going to look at some talking points from pointed cards and their conversion rates. Yep. So uh, this is something. So just that... just before we jump onto that. Oh yeah. Um, the other thing I found interesting, and I had a chat with Isaac about this, is um, so the the winning deck was Flash Hulk. Um, but it's a bit of a less, it's a version that's a bit less all in than some of the previous versions, um, which makes it harder to sideboard against because we're we're against a lot of versions of Flash Hulk. You know, if you can disrupt the combo, which is not trivial, but it's very doable, uh, the game's over. They've lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so you sideboard going, all right, I'm going to put in uh, Torpor Orb because it stops their kill, or, you know, Rest in Peace because it stops, whatever. Um, this deck's playing, like, Titania and Vendillion Clique. So sometimes you'll do that, and they'll just be like, cool, but I'm going to mid-range you to death right now. <laughs> um so, yeah, look, that's, a, that's an interesting take on the deck. Sweet. Well, let's have an interesting take on uh, pointed cards now. Yep. So, w- rather than looking at just overall archetypes, this is something that uh, people have requested from the podcast in the past, and obviously when you give us some requests, especially for our Patreons, uh, patrons, 
in our Patreon, uh, especially for our patrons, if they say, hey, uh, we'd like to hear this on the cast, well, we oblige. And we've been uh, requested to go over uh, point conversions rather than looking at just the archetype conversions, because obviously, say, you look at control and you go, hey, Kess versus Esper control, these are two very different decks. You know, how do they actually perform independently? It's tricky to kind of... um, you know, trawl for that that kind of detail because it's kind of middling detail. It's not really, really broad strokes, but it's not fine points. So let's go to the fine points, which is literal actual points and seeing how they converted. So what I've done here is I've looked at uh, only the cards that rocked up in a certain set of numbers. So we're not going to look at things where the one person who happened to sleeve up uh, you know, this particular card, you know, the, the three people who sleeved up a Black Lotus, you know, that, that kind of thing. We're going to look at really, really popular cards. And I think the first one to start off with, we're going to talk about underperformers first. The first one to start off with is True Name Nemesis. We've been talking about True Name Nemesis being just a huge converter, right? Just amazing de- amazing card. So, uh from a mathematical point of view, basically, if you're looking at a top eight, uh, eight the top eight players are 14% of the field, and we're looking at 17 people sleeving up True Name Nemesis. One of them got into the top eight, so it's kind of like 5% roughly of True Name Nemesis players converted. So you generally expect three players playing True Name Nemesis to be in the top eight for that to be a reflection. So that's basically an underlying, I mean, a really, really broad stroke summary of the underlying basic maths that we've done here uh, to measure underperforming. Now, I'll extend that out to the blue stew. Jason Mind Sculptor, 19 players, one of them top aided. And Snapcaster Mage, 18 players sleeved it up, 0% of Snapcaster players top aided. So for all of these, you'd expect roughly about three people in the top eight, and that has not happened. So uh, the blue stew threats, which are TNN, Jason, Snappy, have underperformed in this particular field. So that's okay. essentially the way that we're doing this mathematics. So I think it's a really interesting talking point because uh, it's linked to the fact that people sleeved up Kess. I think there were six Kess players in total, and 21% yeah. of the field was control, but the actual conversion was poor. But it's specifically the blue stew, you know, selection of cards here, not just, you know, just say um, uh, uh, a particular archetype per se. So, fair, you know, fairness and slowness were not part of the format. And there's one arg- argument here is, you know, aggro did really well. And normally, Trino Nemesis is this big roadblock for aggro. And that's really interesting to see that so many TNNs were in the field, but yet those three aggro players were able to push past them. Uh, I think that's a really interesting observation. As an aggro player, what do you think? Um, yeah, look, I mean, it, it's definitely interesting. One of the things that um, potentially causes that sort of thing is when you have an upswing in combo decks. Um, combo is the one matchup where true name's not impressive. You play your true name on turn three, you play it on turn two even, because you've somehow accelerated it out. And your combo opponent's like, I mean, that's really nice, but 
uh, take 20. <laughs> and, you know, True Name defends you against a lot of things, but he does not defend you against Tendril of Agonies at all. The Tendrils yeah. of Agony. Um, and if I could choose between having an opening hand with Delver of Secrets Spell Pierce, or I could have True Name Nemesis Spell Pierce, I'll basically always take Delver of Secrets. I always take Grim Lava Man. I'll take, you know, Goblin Guide Spell Pierce. I'm happy with this kind of scenario in an open meta because True Name is one of these... Hey, against Combo, he's just really, really bad. And uh, against Aggro, sometimes... Uh, he's really good when you just slam him on turn three, but drawing him later on in the game after your life total is now already eight and then they pop you... Uh, these could be yeah, pretty bad situations. So sometimes you can still get got. And it also depends a bit on the exact aggro decks. Like, some care about True Name much more than others. I mean, as you say, it, like, True Name's good, but obviously it doesn't win every game because you don't always draw it. But even when you do, sometimes they can you know, beat around it or they've got one of their... There are a number of good uh, answers, which some people play main, but are mostly post-board, which are reasonably resilient answers to True Name. Like, you know, things like Council's Judgment or um, Etic Effects... Or hooting mandrills. Uh, new... Yeah, hooting mandrills <laughs> yeah. or rancor can be a quite good way to just go over the top of the monstrosity. In in uh, Modern Horizons, there's a card called Plague... No, Plague Engineer, which kills True Name extremely dead if you can get it into play. There are a bunch of answers and sometimes you get there. And look, it's, again, it's a bit of a, a sample size thing. Like, if we went and made predictions on... Uh, so the next two big events that I'm aware of are... The GP in December and CanCon in January. Yeah, ages away. If we went and made a bet about whether True Name would perform as badly at those events, I would suggest you'd be a sucker to get a bet against True Name. It's a reliable thing. It's just always showing really good results at literally every event up until this point. So, yeah, interesting to but, see but it dip. So sometimes you have individual events where circumstances conspire, everyone's massively overprepared for a particular threat category. Like, at the local events in Canberra, JP, when he was here, he would always play Storm, because, you know, that's the deck he plays. And there were some days where no one had done enough preparation to be playing against Storm, or, or people had done preparation and didn't draw their sideboard cards, and he was just unbeatable. And there would be other days where everyone had five anti-Storm cards, and he'd be mm-hmm. like, well, you know, what do I do? Um, yeah. And some days where you're just in the middle somewhere, but you draw particularly badly or particularly well. I mean, over, over what did you say, 17 people playing True Name? Yeah, 17 people and only one converted. It's pretty Yeah, low. that's that's a surprising number, but it's as I said, it's the long term that you want to look at. Yeah. But anyway, what performed particularly well? Well, I'll just um, add these three uh, discussion points on the underperformers, and then we'll go into the oh, well, yeah. good performers. So these are easy conversion, uh, easy calculations because they had a number of people rock up with them, but had zero of them in the top eight, and they come together as packages because they were largely played in the same decks. So rather than separating them out and going, hey, you know, it's the apocalypse, watch out, all these cards are not playable, it's largely because those particular archetypes uh, didn't particularly perform. So I've separated them out into the lands package. Uh, Six people sleeved up Life from the Loam, five people sleeved up Fast Bond, none of them got into the top eight. And then the ramp package. So we had four Mana Vaults, six Mana Crypts, and seven Sol Rings, and none of them top eighted either. 
And it was really interesting to see because obviously there's a, uh, there was a large amount of confidence in the ramp archetype and also the you know mid-rangey, grindy lands archetypes going into the event. And yep. the conversions for the lands package and the ramp package were just not particularly good. So uh, that's an interesting discussion point in itself that there is this, um, you know, this revival of confidence in ramp, but maybe it's not necessarily performing as well as it could. <laughs> so we'll see exactly what happens with that in the future. Um, the last one was Sensei's Divining Top. Uh, five people sleeve that up, no one converted with it. But again, numbers start to get smaller once you look at, not beyond a package, just one card specifically. You know, we had the Blue Stew, the Lands package, and the Ramp package, all performing relatively poorly. But Top by itself isn't really part of a package unless you're looking at Time Vault and the um, Trinket Mage and, you know, these kind of things. So that's neither here nor there. But let's look at the uh, talking points on our overperformers. So uh, again, we're looking at things that people sleeved up uh, en masse. So I don't want to talk about, you know, things that two people sleeved up. So yep, yep, yep. we have uh, both Skull Clamp and Stoneforge Mystic, both with eight and nine players sleeving up uh, relatively and three and two players converting. So basically 22% of Clamp players converted, which is basically, you know, 50% above what you'd expect. So not dramatic, but can be a margin for error there. But the key one here is Stoneforge Mystic. Stoneforge Mystic has a 38% conversion rate, as opposed to what should be expected, which is 14% of the field getting into top eight. So we're looking at basically a three three times metric. So, you know, if you're sleeving up SFM, you're kind of, uh, you know, you're quite favoured, you know, you're you're quite favoured to get into the top eight. So what do you think about that? You know, this kind of fair, grindy stuff, we haven't really seen much of white-based mid-range decks doing as well in the face of, say, Colligan's command mid-range decks. Uh, yeah. This is interesting, well, I mean, isn't it? This is sort of, uh, in some respects, a direct relation to the downturn in the number of people playing Kess in, in this matter. Like... Mm. Kess is obviously really good at answering both Stoneforge and... Um, not Kess. Colligan's Command is really good at answering both Stoneforge and uh, Skullclamp. If less people are sleeving that up, it does give those decks some uh, breathing room. Mm. And I mean, the, the Stoneforge Skullclamp uh, decks, I mean, A, they're historically very popular in Melbourne. And B, they are quite powerful. Like, I know... I mean, I still don't think Skull Clamp's ever been worth two points, but um, I'm from Canberra, so I'm legally obliged to say that. <laughs> but I do think that it's still a very powerful package, um, particularly at a total of two points between it and the ability to go and fetch, you know, swords or battle skulls or whatever, which clean up some other matches um, very nicely. So, yeah, it's, it's a powerful package and sometimes you're positioned well and it just does what you want. I mean, particularly in a metagame with a lot of combo decks, like Skullclamp's not, neither of them is amazing against combo, but there are some decks where just being able to draw a bunch of extra cards to find your critical hate pieces can help. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Especially know, if you're in like a hate bears someone. deck, like green-white hate bears or something, and you kind of yeah. go, yeah, I'll just uh, whip out my Stoneforge Mystic, get my clamp, and then I'll clamp away my mana dorks, and instead I'll start playing, you know, these Leonin Arbiters and Thalias and that kind of stuff. It seems pretty well positioned. Uh, 
So I'm I'm pretty much looking forward to sleeving up my you know OG foil Stoneforge Mystic again. I that was that was sitting in a box for the last maybe two three years I think I haven't sleeved that one up again since I think Colligan's Command and all of these things you know just drew me back into black and red as the non-blue colors uh, and non you know non-green colors. So that's pretty exciting. Now, the last discussion point for overperformers uh, is with a grain of salt because these are smaller numbers. These are looking at people that sleeved up these cards at a rate of, say, between three and five players in the whole tournament. So sure, sure, sure. these will be quite overinflated, as you'll see in a second. But uh, Birthing Pod had a 40% conversion rate, uh, Time Walk had a 25% conversion rate, and yep. the Flash Package, aka Mystical Tutor, Protein Hulk, Flash, uh, Merchant Scroll, you know, these kind of cards that are typically found in in traditional Flash Hulk decks, not, say, Flash in other kind of combo decks, had about a 33% conversion rate. So, uh, you know, those numbers may be overinflated. I would... I would start to curb them slightly, so I'll just say that they were they were overperforming, but not dramatically overperforming, just because you got to take it with a grain of salt. Um, so, you know, birthing well, and the pod, winner was playing Flash Hulk. Yeah, so. and the winner was playing Flash Hulk exactly. So, uh, this is this raises some interesting points about, say, Flash Hulk uh, in, or, and actually just Flash in general. Let's say Flash in general is a busted card that does busted stuff on turn two quite consistently. When you when it's in your opener. And you happen to pair it up with something uh, nasty to flash in uh, via an Academy Rector or an Arena Rector or a, you know, even not just necessarily Protein Hulk itself, you know, World Spine Worm well, no, or right. something. Like, one of these things, if they happen to be in your hand, you're just going to win that game. It's not really going to be close. So, there's a lot of cards that, I mean, Hulk is obviously the gold standard because if you flash in a Hulk and you don't your opponent doesn't have responses and you don't win the game, you've just built your deck wrong. Like, you should be winning the game at that point. But as you say, there's plenty of things like, you know, uh, Arena Rector put Ugin into play. You've mm. probably won that game. I'm a really, really big uh, supporter of those kind of angles just because, I mean, I've, I've played so many Flash-based decks that do not have Hulk in them. And to be honest, I've, I don't think I've ever sleeved up Hulk itself. I just have watched people play it, and I know it's really cool, and I love all the lines, and I understand the lines and what to sideboard in against them, but I personally don't want to pay my two point at, on Hulk itself. I'd rather start to experiment with Flash at zero. But I have to respect the fact that Flash itself could easily be a one-point card due to its uh, sheer brokenness by itself. It's definitely on the watch list. Um, yeah, and there's just endless things like uh, Woodfall Primus. You know, if if your opponent on turn two flashes in a Woodfall Primus, then they've destroyed both your lands and they've got a 5-5. Five five. Um, yeah. You're not winning that game. <laughs> yep, you're pretty <laughs> far behind. <laughs> uh, it, it's really interesting to see Time Walk continue its good, solid, respectable performance where it's always just above average. You know, it's not like Time Walk is just carving up, but it is just, if you're going to spend three points on a card and you're in a tempo deck or a mid-range deck with uh, Spellseeker and Birthing Pod and the like, like Isaac Egan's uh, pod deck, uh, 
uh, Kespod, then you're going to have a good time just in general. It's it's a good, reliable, above-average performer. And Birthing Pod has started to see uh, some more resurgence as well, which is really nice to see because there was a lot of speculation about Birthing Pod not being good. And we on the committee are going, guys, Birthing Pod is awesome. And... But I guess, you know, the community is saying it's not particularly good. Let's keep investigating it and we keep it on the watch list as a possible thing to come down. But it's, once people sleeve it up, because in the past it was seeing zero people sleeving it up, then you see one person sleeving it up and always top eighting, <coughs> Isaac Egan. Um, and then now five people sleeving it up and two people top eighting, that trend might continue and demonstrate to people that, just like Mind Twist, when Mind Twist was one point and people just didn't sleeve it up for a while until... They did, and they realised it was busted. Uh, it's possible yeah. that will happen here with Birthing Pod. Yeah. Well, cool. So that was pretty interesting. Um, and there's a couple of other things we want to talk about. So I think we're done with the yeah, we're done master stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can go and look on the on Graham King's post there. Uh, it's labelled in the Oz Eternal forums. You can look at some of the cards that we didn't discuss there, but that's largely because of their numbers. Like uh, Limdul's Vault had a good conversion rate, but only two people played it. And Oath of Druids had like a perfect conversion rate of 100% because <laughs> you know, one person happens to sleeve it up and gets top eight, you know? So... Uh, just don't worry about those. Go and look at them with your own eyes and, and we won't waste time talking about overinflated numbers here. Yeah, so the first additional thing I want to talk about, which is not going to be a long conversation, is um, overseas players. So we've been getting an influx of new players from countries that aren't Australia, um, which is amazing. It's fantastic. Like, being able to go into the Discord and there's someone new and they're like, oh yeah, I'm from, you know, Finland or I'm from Georgia or Philadelphia, which are all things that happened in the last week, um, is awesome. Like, it gives us a new perspective. Uh, it's really encouraging to know that people are finding the format through uh, things like, you know, that, that article that was on Channel Fireball or the podcast or various other methods is great from the committee's perspective so so Salve's in adelaide i'm in canberra mulch and isaac are in melbourne and those are, those are probably the three biggest hubs in australia although there's growing groups in i know brisbane yep. and toowoomba and sydney and various other places brisbane's um, definitely coming up there uh, their events yeah. are starting to look like what Adelaide's events were looking like about a year ago in terms oh, of sweet, numbers. Sweet. Yeah, and so I think give it another year and Brisbane will probably be basically the same numbers, consistent, large events like Adelaide as well. So I think that's that's really exciting. For these Australian groups, we've got a reasonable amount of visibility about what kind of metagames people have, what decks people are playing, what cards are problematic um, or completely non-problematic that... Uh, we need to think about from a points perspective. But these overseas groups, we don't, unless you come and tell us. We're looking at doing some changes on the Discord that let us have chats with the non-Australian groups specifically, just so that we can get more direct feedback from them that might otherwise be drowned out by the extremely enfranchised players who've been playing the game, playing the format for much longer. New, yeah, new, new perspectives are really, really exciting when you get a complete different, you know, so oftentimes with, with this kind of established player base, we have some really, really, you know, sacred cows where this particular card is busted at one point, obviously always play it, or likewise, the other thing, you know, this card is just absolutely unplayable, don't play it. And well, 
you just take you just get a whole different perspective from someone who's just started to brew it uh, in a different environment with a different meta, and they start to go, oh, actually, this is playable. Actually, it's not playable, and it's not necessarily the truth. No one particular area is going to be the going to be yeah. the uh, you know absolute. This is the absolute objective truth, but it's just more data points, and they're great. You get, as we've talked about on the podcast before, metagames get somewhat uh, insular, and you get things where everyone or a group of people is like, oh, Kess is clearly the best deck. It's always, you know, it's just too good. It's probably always going to be the best deck. And then you get an event like this one we just were talking about where zero Kess decks made the top eight because people have tried something different. Yep. And people from different areas are going to have different perspectives on that stuff, um, which we'd love to hear. The other thing that we're interested in is, particularly for the US, because there seems to be a concentration or a growing concentration there, what areas people are in so that we can talk to people like uh, SCG or Channel Fireball and say, hey, if you ran a side event at one of your events, um, we reckon you'd get X amount of players. Um, you know, th- these are the areas people are from. These are how keen they are to go to these kinds of events. So like a bit of market research-ish stuff to help us talk to the people who can run events for you guys to help grow the format as well. Because obviously, uh, again, if in a Magic Fest side event schedule, there's Seven Point Islander event on the Friday and it's three rounds and there's these prizes, people are going to go, what's that? And some of them will go, well, that sounds terrible. And some of them will go, that sounds amazing. It's the format I've always been looking for. Mm, mm. Um, we're going to put up some polls on the Facebook group. Um, we're going to find some way of having a spot in the Discord where we can have a chat with as I said, people who are uh, from our sort of um, primary markets. Because, yeah, we'd really love to you know, get some of that information and, and uh, use it to help grow the game. Yeah, and there's a lot, the of, a lot of you have you know, started to you know, creep out of the woodwork and say, hi, guys, I'm from this particular country, or you know, oh, I'm wondering yeah. about building this in my local area. What do you guys think? Which is really great to hear. But there's obviously a cohort of you, because we can see our listenership numbers, and there's obviously a cohort of you who just... Love sit kicking back and relaxing and listening to our lovely voices here with our <laughs> hilarious accents down under. Uh, and you, Gee, Cobber. <laughs> so you you obviously uh, want to build that in your particular local scene, but you are you know maybe uncomfortable about mentioning that in a Discord where basically you make you make you say uh, something and then suddenly three or four sentences have gone past and your thing's buried because there's yeah. so much. Activity on there, uh, just PM us. Send send us that message at the tw- at the Twitter or you know uh, PM Sav or uh, uh, Mister Verbal or you know one one of us will just be able to uh, you know chat with you directly and and that will yeah. make sure your 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 voice doesn't get drowned out. Don't be afraid that you know you're just one person because literally every Highlander community started with that one person who was passionate about the topic and then people yeah. just you know started to float gravitate towards them and a whole community. Uh, sprung up around them. So, yeah, don't be shy. The other thing I wanted to mention, uh, now that you say that, uh, um, and this applies to people who are from places which are Australia, as well as people who are from places which are not Australia. This also applies if you've got thoughts about pointing or the format in general that you feel are getting drowned out or that you don't feel are getting understood. Again, particularly this is for people who don't have a local committee member they can have a chat with or maybe just don't feel confident um, having a chat with them. You can PM any of the four of us, uh, so myself, uh, Sav, Isaac Egan, or Luke Mulcahy, and say, hey, look, 
Uh, I'm from, I don't know, let's say Brisbane. We've been having this experience in our tournaments. I know it's not reflective of the experience in Canberra or Melbourne or whatever, but, you know, this is how we feel about it. Information is good. Yeah. It's a, it's a good summary. <laughs> yeah, we're always open to listening to these kind of things. It, it helps us to understand what's going on in your local meta and, you know, how that might be congruent with what is help happening in our local meta or in the rest of Australia, or it might be completely incongruent and it's just new information for us, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Right, so well, does that bring us to the end? The, yeah, we were going to talk a little bit about... Um, Modern Horizons, but I think a little bit more about Modern Horizons, but I think we've basically run out of time. Um, yeah. The other thing I'd mention, which is probably going to be very obvious by the time this comes out, is um, Core Twenty Twenty looks like it's got a lot of Highlander playables in it, uh, more than Core Twenty Nineteen did, that's for sure. Our next episode will be about that. But uh, you're from the future, so uh, you've already seen what's in Core Twenty Twenty more than we have when we're recording this. We're we're recording this on the month uh, on the Tuesday after the first spoilers came out, so. Like there's 30 cards spoiled or something. All right. Well, uh, that's been a really fun little dive into a variety of different topics, including masters and some schemes and our international audience. And that brings us to a close. So if you'd like to find out more about Highlander, the format itself, you can go on to Oz Eternal, where there is a Highlander primer. Uh, if you want to join our Facebook group or our Discord or our Twitter, you can find all of them in the show notes. I don't remember them off by heart. Um, but you, I do remember that at Vancey Notions is Vance's Twitter because I remember Millie saying it many times. Uh, <laughs> I do not have Twitter. <laughs> The actual, the actual branding for the Highlander cast is entirely consistent across all of the formats. It is... I don't remember it. What is it? <laughs> it it's, well, I mean, it's just the words Highlander cast. Occasionally it's seven-point Highlander cast, but um, you can find us uh, under Highlander cast on Facebook and on Twitter. Um, our Patreon is uh, probably Highlander, Highlander cast. cast. Patreon yep. slash Highlander cast yep. or something very similar to that. Um, we are going to be uh, you know, investing some of that uh, patron funds. Thank you very much for all of your donations. It's really, really uh, very rewarding for us to see that uh, this content is liked and loved by many people. And yep. for those of you who chuck a dollar our way every time there's an episode, thank you so much for being a patron. And we are going to appropriate some of those funds uh, finally to purchasing a microphone for me. Uh, I am, uh, I've been going through a series of computers and experimenting with different things and uh, different headphones and the like, all of which are pretty crummy and held together with some <laughs> duct tape, but <laughs> we will hopefully be getting better audio quality from my end sometime soon. So thank you very much yeah, for your support. You, you might notice this episode in particular is a little bit scratchier than usual, but um, we're looking at fixing that in the near future. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for your support. And uh, if you want to become a supporter, you know, we will absolutely love that. But obviously, the content will always be free for everyone. Uh, it's just for those of you who want to go that little extra mile to uh, show your appreciation. So thank you very much for that. Uh, and that brings us to the end of our episode. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. And it's, uh, well, hey, hey, we just totally did that with no notes. That was pretty good, hey? I don't know. There was like. Uh, I've, got, I've got one that... word notes here. It says close. So yeah, close. Do the yeah. do the usual close thing. I think by episode thirty something, we are finally at a point where we can remember the spiel. 
but we don't remember. Mm. Oh, I don't remember <laughs> the actual at yeah, Highlander look. cast. Is that what it is? At seven point, I don't know. You guys probably know it better. So thank you very much anyway. for listening. <laughs> Farewell for see now. You, everyone. We'll see you next episode. Bye. And that's a wrap.